This is Mako President Jerry Walker, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. I'm Kevin Canale, Mako's Policy Associate, joined as always by my co-host, Mako's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. Hey, Kevin. Today on the podcast, we are going to discuss Mako's position on tax reform. We've developed a uniform position across the board. We'll then get into commitment and school funding. We have the governor's proposal versus the General Assembly's proposal. Then we'll get into an update on sick leave some substantial developments there. We'll talk about employer mandates, and then we will get into bad docs. And you'll see what we mean later there. But Michael, let's first start with uh, the MAKO position on tax reform. So, so Kevin, this is this is a topic we've mentioned on the on the podcast a few times already. This big fiscal issue looming over Maryland is a result of federal tax reform. So Congress makes a bunch of changes to the way the, the United States income tax is going to work. Uh, that's got repercussions on Maryland taxpayers. The first round was understanding whether Maryland taxpayers were going to receive the same kind of tax relief as people in other states. The general answer, no, there were limits here. Um, you know, there were some specific things to the contours of Maryland's tax system that made things tougher for Maryland residents than other places. But round two is is realizing that as a result of these changes in the federal system, we end up with a lot of secondhand sort of reverberations on, on Maryland taxes. And we'll have a, a, about a third of the Maryland taxpayers are looking at a substantial tax increase on their state and local taxes unless Maryland uh, lawmakers make some changes this year. And we've seen a number of proposals to do just that, oh, right? yeah. to, to make sure that uh, you know state residents don't lose out here. And so instead of going and testifying on every one of these bills and having to pick and choose some of these bills would create winners and losers. We've adopted a position that we're going to take across the board, right? Right. So, I mean, the, the challenge for MAKO and for county governments is well, we, have a, we have a sort of philosophy on tax issues that it holds up really well on property taxes, mm-hmm. that when the state makes policy changes on property taxes, we say, listen, most of the property tax is a local revenue source. If you want to make a change to say this particular kind of business or this activity or this kind of building ought to get a tax break, we generally say let it be a local decision. So make it an enabling, a local option thing. Let the counties or the counties and municipal governments decide whether they want to do it. And and that's worked pretty well for property taxes. The difficulty with income taxes, when you start giving income tax subtraction modifications or you change the exemptions or deductions, or these sorts of things that, that affect people's taxable income, when the state changes its policy, it flows right through to the counties. Right. 
So, so we end up in this spot where if our, if our point of view is that county elected officials ought to be the ones making county budget decisions, then how does that hold up an income taxes? State makes a change, and suddenly we just gave a, t- a tax cut right along with them. So we are asking here, while we're talking about taxes in the state, that the state should go ahead and look at creating this local option for income taxes like it does with property taxes. We'd like them to do that. I I mean, I I think in a more nearly perfect world, we'd like to have a system where – income taxes could work like property taxes do and the state could make a decision and then the counties could decide whether they want to piggyback on that decision. Now, if that's our general take on income tax issues, that leaves us in a weird spot because this year, absent state action, there's a potential windfall of tax revenue as lots of Marylanders will be paying higher tax rates or at least higher taxes. Right. So, does, does MAKO come in and oppose a wide range of bills that have this carryover effect? They're just sort of responding to the federal change and trying to put all or part of that back, you know, some of the toothpaste back in the tube. Right. right? I mean, each of these bills would have distinct distributional effects. Right. I mean, there's, 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 I, I've, well, I lost count, but there's right. something like, you know, 25 different bills, different variations on themes, but let's change the rates or let's change the, the standard deduction amount or the personal exemption amount. There's, there's a whole wide range of ways to try to do this. Um, Mako theoretically could come in and say, well, we think these are okay. We think these go too far and so forth. Um, the, the idea that our legislative committee has settled on is basically we should stay out of this. We're, we're not, we're not going to come in and sort of lay claim to, we want to hold on to whatever the County component of that windfall might be. So if there was a, a major windfall, Mako's not going to go in and say, we want every penny, uh, you know, we're not going to have it any other way, or we're not going to go in and say, you should give everything back. We're going to leave that up to the General Assembly. And you, of course, will be advocating on behalf of county needs and, and what count, yeah. what's best for counties. But we have a, a general position now on, as you said, all of these 25 bills. Right. So, so as, as a practical matter, we'll, we'll take these issues and not treat them like losses of county revenues like we ordinarily would. So, I mean, sometimes we come to Annapolis and we'll say, this is a proposal for a new income tax break and it'll cost counties $10 million. We'd rather make that decision ourselves. So we oppose it being made here in Annapolis. The same idea, but when it's the same principle could apply to these kind of bills, mm-hmm. but I think we're doing the right thing by staying out of that fight, not applying the same logic to this one-time windfall, and let the policy sort itself out for what's the appropriate statewide response. And yeah, as you said, the legislative committee came up with this position. They're very supportive of it. I think it's great to see all of the counties on the same page here. Right. So, I mean, I, th- I think that positions us well to stay credible on the things where we have that stake, that that you know, the specific issue of uh, targeted tax relief. We'd rather have the say, but the broad tax policy, you know, that's going to be in the hands of the legislature and that's, that's really where it ought to be. So at upcoming bill hearings, MAKO will submit this general statement as opposed to submitting, you know, bill specific testimony on each broad based tax reform proposal. We'll keep you updated there as these bills continue to move or not move. Michael, let's now talk about the lockbox debate. So as our listeners may remember, last month, the General Assembly you know, they came up with a plan that essentially puts all these casino revenues into a lockbox for education. I know many people thought that was already the case. 
But their idea is to put this question on the on on the ballot to make it a constitutional amendment so that this would be set in stone so that they couldn't make changes, you know, et cetera. That was a big press conference. They made a big deal of it. Right. Well, yesterday, the governor proposed his own education bill lockbox for the state share of gambling revenue. And uh, he says that his proposal will pump about $4.4 billion into supplementing education funding. This would be phased in over four years. And under the governor's plan, $100 million would go directly to uh, school construction funding, which is something new that we didn't hear um, in the General Assembly's plan. The balance there, about $400 million, would be phased in over four years. The big difference here is that the governor's bill would not require a referendum. It would be done through statute. So, so this is a, a variation on a theme, uh, but, but I think this changes the nature of this conversation pretty substantially. And, we, and we, we've already seen legislative leaders say they like this idea and they have a framework in mind and they want to go in this general direction. So and we were already poised that this was going to be a live debate for this session. Yeah, and, I think we talked about this yeah. a couple months ago, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, before the session started, we were trying to lay out what education topics we thought would be live during this election year. And this was sort of as we as we shifted gears. We were trying to talk about school funding issues, and we thought that you know, maybe the Kerwan Commission was going to have its recommendations. We'd be looking at big monumental changes uh, when when sort of the plug got pulled on that being a 2018 debate, now it looks like it'll be a 2019 debate. Okay, that's fine. So what does this year look like? It is an election year. This seemed like a good candidate. So so we talked about this as uh, the the idea of fencing off the the casino revenues and making sure use the exact right word so supplement mm-hmm. instead of supplant other funds and that that's the spirit everybody's on board with now so so if you're an education advocate you you have to be happy because this seems like it's a done deal if the general assembly and the governor both agree that this is a good idea we're moving toward that direction they need to work out some specifics about how you know you get there whether it's on the ballot or whether it's done through statute but this seems like it's setting a funding source for any potential recommendations that come out of the Kerwin Commission next year. Yeah, I think – I mean the, the details are going to matter and and I think people who care about school funding and, and you know, stable, predictable growth in school funding are going to want to see how that looks. This isn't really the funding source. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean the follow through here is this is a commitment that the money's going to be there, right. and by saying the amount of the revenue coming from the from from the casino activity is going to go into a fund, and that's going to be above and beyond our standard formula commitment. That's saying extra money is going to be there, but it, it doesn't say what you know what revenue source is going to replace what's left in the state's general fund. So that's very true. Yeah. So so I mean that that's going to leave the state with the same tricky issues that it already has when looking at a new funding commitment. And that is, you know, does this come from a new revenue source? Does this come from just cutbacks in other spending areas? And, and we, you know, we've, we've seen you now that's the, that's the standard fiscal debate in, in, in every state legislature, I think. Yeah. Money doesn't just fall out of the sky. So <laughs> um, you got to replace it somewhere. So uh, again, this is very interesting. These two proposals, uh, again, the Democrats have come out and said that this would be a constitutional amendment that you should let the voters decide, uh, make this a referendum. The governor says no. Let's just do it through statute. It's much easier that way. Wouldn't require a referendum. Yeah, and that's and that's a meaningful difference in, at a couple of levels. Uh, one is that the teeth 
involved in putting something into the Constitution uh, matters. Not 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 just for for symbolism, but you can't just pass a bill to override a clause in the Constitution. I mean, this is this is sort of you know ninth grade civics kind of stuff. Right. But something that's enshrined in the Constitution and approved by the voters to be there has a higher standing than just the year-to-year legislation that can be enacted by the General Assembly signed by the governor. So, I mean, we see all the time something like a Budget Reconciliation and Financing Act. Around town, we call it the, the BRFA, the Big BRFA, right? Mm-hmm. So that's usually a bill. And what the what that bill does every year is it overrides funding mandates, it overrides statutory provisions, it changes formulas, it suspends the effect of something, it delays things. I mean, these are all statutory promises that get routinely overridden in the name of we need to make the budget plan work. So one of the big questions with the governor's proposal is what's going to stop uh, either him or uh, you know a governor in the future from coming in and saying, you know what, we're not going to do that this year. You're going to put the BRFA in. We're going to cut those mandates. And with the other proposal here, the mandate, you know, the the referendum on the ballot, it would be a lot harder to do that. And and this isn't this isn't a function of of the governor deciding to to not follow the law. This is a matter of the general assembly. Right. You know, ends up enacting legislation each year along with the budget that makes the whole budget plan work. So, right. I mean, the, the the entire decision-making apparatus in Annapolis relies on do, on doing this kind of stuff. And anyhow, I, I think I think that is a substantive difference between the two approaches. I, I don't I don't think it's easy to predict whether we'll end up with something on the ballot and in the Constitution, or whether you know, Annapolis will collectively be satisfied by doing something in statute. But this idea of a commitment of casino revenues above and beyond, you know, what what comes from general revenue sources and all going to education, um, that looks like it's it's the it's the horse in front of the pack now. Yeah, it looks like we're well on the way to to this idea. And uh, again, we have the administration and the General Assembly agreeing on the idea. Now it's just a matter of how we get there going to go ahead and take a break. After the break, we're going to get into a sick leave update. We'll talk about employer mandates, and then we will get into bad docs. All that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. And Michael, we have a substantial update on the paid sick leave law. Yeah, one of these topics that we've talked about, I think, you know, several weeks running, but uh, it's, it's attracted a lot of attention in Annapolis and the story may be over. The story may be over. So as we've discussed in the past here, uh, the sick leave bill requires employees, employers with 15 or more employees to provide sick and safe leave of five, five days per year to their employee, employees. Um, you know, that bill was vetoed by the governor. The General Assembly then overrode the veto. And then uh, Senator Middleton, the finance chair, and actually the, the sponsor of the original House Bill 1, the sick leave bill, uh, introduced legislation that would delay the implementation 
it seemed to be that everyone needed a little more time. Uh, businesses, as, as well as Mako, testified in support of that delay. The Senate passed the bill. Uh, it received a hearing yesterday in the Economic Matters Committee, and today the committee voted 12 to 11 to kill the bill. So that that and that probably seals the fate of this subject. Um, you know, for for folks who are new to the policy process in Annapolis, an unfavorable vote by a committee is basically the end of the show. Um, this was never a slam dunk to happen. And as we had talked about this, we you know we had expressed. Kind of, we thought there was an interesting conversation in the Senate committee mm-hmm. where there was a lot of back and forth about some people. I think had sympathy for the implementation. Maybe you need a few more weeks, or you know, ended up coming out of the Senate as a few more months to actually put this on the books and give everybody time to to react. But the, you know, the hearing in the House was kind of as people had predicted, a lot of skepticism. Right. I, I think you know the business community showed up, and in many cases they said, well, we've only had a couple of weeks to know about this. And the, the reality is, I mean, this bill was passed by the General Assembly back in April. Right. There, there wasn't much sympathy you know, from the committee chair uh, and from many of the committee members saying, look, you all have ta- had time to do this. Like you said, this was passed last year. Even though the governor had vetoed the bill, I think the anticipation was that the General Assembly was going to go ahead and override that veto when they got back to town this year. Right. And so I think a lot of people felt that way about the timing issues and felt like, okay, folks, you know, this isn't a surprise right. that the, the veto's been overridden. So, yeah, technically you only had 30 days, but as a practical matter, we sort of knew since summertime that this was going to happen in January and be effective in February. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we were surprised. I mean, even Senator Middleton said, uh, you know, he didn't expect the House to uh, give this bill much of a chance because, again, they don't want to litigate everything from last year. And right. I think the concern was if they brought it to the floor, you'd have days and days of debate yeah. bringing up all the issues from last year. And I don't think there was an appetite to do that. Right. And and as, as it turns out, I think there was a pretty there was a pretty strong voice from proponents of the bill in the first place to say enough is enough. Let's just start getting everybody on the clock and, and gathering their their benefits. So, yeah. So yeah. I think we can put this issue to bed. We've discussed this on uh, multiple yeah. uh, episodes of this podcast, but all the bills that are in now uh, that would modify last year's sick leave bill or delay any sort of implementation. There are a, a few bills in. I think yeah. those are dead. Yeah, we, we, we figure that's, I mean, this is probably the end of this whole debate. Right. So there, there's going to be a half dozen bills that would say, let's, you know, let's postpone it for a year or change the way we, we enforce it or the other, it's, it, they're done. They're done. Yeah. All right. So let's get in on that note. Let's now get into employer mandates. And we have seen a bunch of bills this year that would mandate the private sector and also, you know, government employers to to do certain things. Right. And and I mean this is this is one of those challenges of public policy, I think, that in the General Assembly uh, members have all sorts of well-intentioned legislation. We've, you know, we're we're in the process of looking through bills that affect counties mm-hmm. and we see these, you know, get introduced all the time and you can you you can understand the thinking of a delegate or a senator who says, you know, I want to make sure that this happens at the hiring process or I want to make sure that people who have jobs are being treated fairly in in this way or that way. 
So this ends up being sort of a, a balancing act, I think, as a matter of public policy. You know, how far does the government go to in, you know, to sort of dictate the terms of what really is a private arrangement between you know, a private employer and, and their employees? And that is a debate that we could have for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> and I'm sure we'd have a lot of input from our listeners as well. There are many different opinions about that. But just to get into some specific bills that I think are interesting. So we've seen a bill this year that basically says when you're hiring an employee, you cannot consider their salary history upon hiring them or uh, promoting them. And this this is a bill that I think is trying to address address the uh, gender wage gap, uh, not only in Maryland, but across the country. But there are some serious concerns and questions. Number one. I think, you know, counties, we, we said, and I heard a lot of the, the private sector say as well, how can you promote someone when you're not considering their current wage, right? How can you give them more money? Or as, as many counties do, they're promoted in steps where you take current salary plus 5%, 6%, right. whatever it may be. How can you do that if you're not considering what they're currently making? So right. I, I think this is a very interesting debate, and I understand the intent of the bill, but like a lot of these bills, there are many questions. And I think the central question being, as as you mentioned earlier, what is the role of government in the private sector? Yeah. And, and this one in particular is one where there's sort of two prongs. I, I think, I think the, the, the employer community, you know, the chamber of commerce and, and the other groups who represent business and private employers, you know, they have sort of a, a, a standard argument, which is, let us do our own thing. You know, yeah, that sort of thing. And I, I mean, that's, that's their, that's their appropriate role. That's, that's what they're, they're, they're supposed to say. And, and in a lot of cases, that's going to win the day. I, I think county governments, just because we're, we are the public sector and we have a different kind of accountability. I mean, we're different than a bike shop or a Walmart or, or BGE even. Right. Um, we're, if, if we have, if we make a change to the personnel policy in Worcester County or Garrett County, that goes before a public hearing. Citizens have a chance to comment on it. The people who make those decisions stand for elections by the citizens. Um, so, so there's I a mean, lot of accountability. Yeah, I mean, it's so we are different in some respects. Um, and so I think on, on something like this, where we say, you know, lots of public sector, um, public sector pay scales are, are structured. And, and we say, hey, you come in to our Department of Public Works and uh, you get hired in a role like, you know, engineer grade one. Right. Okay, right. That, that's fine. And, and then so, so as an engineer grade one, step one, there's a little box on a form somewhere that says this person makes exactly this many dollars. Right. And, you know, each year we do colas or other things like that and the numbers go up gradually. I mean, that, that, that's fine. Everybody kind of understands the public sector sort of civil service notion of structure advancement in your position. Uh, but a literal reading of this bill says you can't take an engineer one and promote her to engineer two because inherently you're saying engineer two is the person who makes 8% more than engineer one. And that's what we pledged was her next advancement. Once she completes the goals as an engineer one, you move to engineer two. And under this bill, you can't do that. Right. The 8% is null and void because 8% of what? If you can't consider the current salary, you don't know what the hike should be. And I, I don't think we can, we can't presume to speak for 
the intentions of the sponsor or, or the supporters of this bill. But I, I, I think it's reasonable to say from a county perspective, we're in a tough spot there. Absolutely. I mean, we, we, um, we're, we don't think this kind of a system is inherently biased against certain classes of employers. There was a lot of conversation about this trying to close a gap in gender discrimination and in hiring and in salaries and so forth. And you know, I, I, I mean, the idea, the idea of a structured, structured promotion for someone to give them an upward opportunity in a public sector job is a pretty central concept to civil service employment and public sector employment everywhere. Yeah, and I think that's so important that, that the local governments are different, that we are exposed to a public process and to public hearings. And on a lot of these bills, on a lot of these employer mandate bills, we do stand out because we have a different process. As you said, right. we're not a Walmart. We're not, right. you know, Barnes & Noble, McDonald's, whatever mm-hmm. it is. We do have a different uh, process. And, and so I think it's important for people to remember that when they're, when they're writing these bills and including local governments um, as employers in the bills. Uh, there's another interesting bill I think a lot of people have talked about. This is a conversation that's going on across the country, and that's ban the box. Um, there's a bill in that, that would ban the box. and Maryland, two of our counties have already done this in some respect. Montgomery County and Baltimore City have laws on the books that address this issue in some way. But I think the bill that we've seen now would make this statewide and it would apply to all counties. So so the, the idea here is ban the box is sort of a shorthand for a, an employment or a hiring form that has a traditional space that says, you know, check this box if you have a, a you know, if you're convicted of a felony, if you have a criminal past, um, you can, you know, reveal that now. And the worry is that if you check that box, the employer is going to look at that application and throw Toss it in the trash. Out. And you're never going to get an interview. The employer is never going to get to see you and meet you. And maybe you would be a great employee, but they would never know because they're just judging you based on the application. Right. So, so the idea of, at its core, I think the idea of ban the box is remove that piece of information from some parts of the hiring process, but allow it to be introduced later. At right. least let the person get in the door, um, make the case, you know, I'm a good fit for this job, and then you know, let the employer consider the person's entire you know, experience and qualifications and attitude and all the things that they're looking for. And then if this information factors in, you know, some somewhere later in the process, then, okay, you know, now, now I, I at least know who you are and I can weigh this one piece of information against that. I, I mean, that's, that's the intent behind this whole thing. Right. So the question becomes, I mean, is this something that should be done at a statewide level or this, should this be left up to local jurisdictions? The private sector will certainly weigh in on this. There are certain classes of employees who I think, you know, you'd have to uh, grant exemptions to, like teachers or anyone who works with kids, uh, folks who work in the you know prisons and jail system. I think those exemptions are, will be, you know, introduced in the bill and are. But there are other circumstances where someone may want to say, look, it's up to me whether or not I want to put this on my application. So, again, this question of what role should government play in this process is an interesting one. Right. And and so, you know, we again have this blended perspective from MAKO's behalf, thinking about county governments. Mm-hmm. And uh, as employers, county governments are different in, in some ways. But one of the ways is 
we hire people who interact with the public super directly. Absolutely. And they're supervising children or they're teachers. I mean, you know, they're, they're in public safety. They're um, driving you know, county vehicles. Right. And, right? and, but, and but, you know, firefighters who go into your house, mm-hmm. um, I, I think – I think there are pretty wide classes of public sector employees where a criminal background is by probably all rights, an absolute bar to employment. So, you know, what do you do? Do you just exempt that completely? Or do you say, well, you're going to still have to go through some extra hullabaloo and then you'll throw these people out later in the process. I mean, if that just becomes a paperwork nightmare, that's a different level of objection than, you know, than, than, than maybe the, the core to this, this whole bill. But I think there's an interesting nuance that came up when the House committee was talking about this. Yes. And, and, and that is we have some local governments who have done this as a countywide, um, you know, not, not for county government hiring, but for employers within the county. Right. And in, I know there was, there was reference particularly to the Montgomery County law, which uh, doesn't push the introduction of a criminal background as far back as the state proposal. I'm not an expert here, but it sounded like the state proposal that, that they're considering now would say, this is at the tail end. Yeah. You're, you're making a higher offer. You're saying, okay, I'm going to hire this person. By the way, I want to ask this one question and I reserve the right to withdraw the job offer. A lot of employers I think have said, that's too far along in the process. How about if, and I think the Montgomery County law says the first round of interviews has to be done in the absence of that information right. and it can be introduced afterwards. That's somewhere in the middle of the process. It seems It's a compromise, right? It's, a, it's right in the middle. And I guess, you know, the employer argument would be, I don't want to get all the way to the end of the process and, and waste my time and the prospective employee's time, lead them on, and then at the end have to ask this question, hey, by the way, everything's contingent on this and then have to disqualify them at the end of the process. So it is an interesting debate. Um, I think that it, it will be in debate this session, and, um, you know, that bill may have some legs. Yeah, and this, and this is one where MAKO hasn't lined up on this. The, the ban-the-box proposal, as introduced, the definition of employer didn't include public sector employers. That's right. So we were on the sidelines for this one, but because – it was a big day full of the kind of employer mandates that we're talking about right now. We were watching those hearings in the Economic Matters Committee that day, and the, the sponsor of the bill uh, indicated his intention was to amend the bill to expand that definition, make it affect public sector. So we may be in this conversation after all. Yeah, so we may be involved there. And uh, again, this is something to keep an eye on, and we will keep you updated. But this whole conversation about employer mandates I think it's a it's a really great debate, and we just wanted to highlight some of those bills that we've seen this session. Right. Uh, it, it- this session being an election year yes. adds just a little extra flavor to lots of conversations, but this sort of thing, um, it's, it, it makes it tougher to predict what subjects, um, you know, have life are going to get attention and it may snowball into a big conversation. Yeah. But to keep a close eye on all of these bills, because as, as you mentioned, this is an election year, you never know. Yep. So, Michael, let's now get into bad docs. And I want to start the conversation by saying, as everyone listening probably knows, Maryland, along with almost every state in this country, has a major problem with heroin and opioid abuse. For sure. So 75% of the heroin users in Maryland say that they first that they started heroin after using prescription opioids. So we have what's called a prescription drug monitoring program. And the point of that program is to collect, monitor, 
and analyze electronically transmitted prescribing dispensing data and that data that's submitted by pharmacies and and doctors essentially yeah and this is this is the kind of thing that is traditionally done at the state level this is not typically right. a federal kind of program so this isn't really congress's responsibility you have things like physician licensing boards at the state level all this kind of stuff is overseen at the state so this is a state by state decision maryland's by no means are we alone in having a program like this so yeah 49 states DC and Guam right now have <laughs> operational PDMPs in Go Maryland. Guam, uh, Guam's yeah, on it. Yeah. Guam is, Guam's <laughs> on board. They were early on, I think, actually. Um, so in Maryland, we established our program in 2011. It became operational in 2013. And as I said, data is collected from prescribers and pharmacies, um, and we monitor schedule two, three, four, and five drugs. Now, when it comes to accessing this information, prescribers, dispensers, health occupation licensing, licensing boards, um, and then patients may also request their own history. And then we have a PDMP technical advisory committee who also has access. Right. So I mean, so we've got an apparatus in place to sort of keep an eye. I mean, we, we know prescription drugs um, is one of the components of the, the drug abuse, the heroin problem, and people getting, you know, getting, getting connected to this. So this tool is, is designed to keep people on track, keep the licensing authorities aware of who might be, you know, who might be straying from, from their duties and so forth. And, and it's a, this is another public policy balance. We kind of, you know, talk about this as a trope, but again, you want to have a system that, that respects the professionalism of the physicians Mm -hmm. and respects the privacy of their conversations and decisions with patients. But at the same time, this is one of the components to a huge public health crisis. Absolutely. And so when we talk about this issue, one of the, the big questions that each state has to grapple with is what kind of access do you want federal, state, and local law enforcement to have to the information in the PDMP? So in Maryland, um, law enforcement can have access, but number one, they have to be registered with the PDMP and they can only request information for the purpose of furthering an existing investigation. Typically, you'd need a subpoena to to access information. Right, and so this is you know this is where this balance gets tricky, and the 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 physicians have an argument which is they need to have their judgment respected, and I think public health practitioners and law enforcement and everybody in the public sector and elsewhere who's trying to fight this this scourge of opioid addiction and misuse and overdose. Um, we just need all the tools we can get. Absolutely. So any data that they can get, any tool that they can use in the toolbox to fight this scourge, they want to use. So right now, the program may review prescription monitoring data. Um, There is legislation in that would require the program to review this monitoring data, and that's looking for indications of possible misuse or abuse of a monitored prescription drug or a possible violation of a law um, or breach of professional standards by a you know prscriber or a dispenser uh, the bad docs. the bad docs right. so this legislation that's being proposed says that you know if you see that um, you may notify the appropriate law enforcement agency or health occupations board and if you do notify them you have to provide them with the data necessary for an investigation and so so this is the controversial part of of this continued fight right and and uh, you know, the legislature this year has to grapple with some some tough questions about what what 
have we not done yet in this fight? We have, I mean, we're not winning the fight against opioids. The, the number of overdoses and deaths and issues with contamination in the supply of both opioids and heroin, um, it's just, it's still growing in, in big parts of the state. Uh, so, And Michael, where uh, we yeah. sit in Anne Arundel yeah. County, I know we've talked with oh, yeah. um, County Executive Steve Shu. And he has an idea that I think is very interesting and will certainly play a role in this conversation in 2018. Right. Well, this I mean, this plugs into like you just you just set the table Mm -hmm. for this debate. And that is we're gathering information on who's writing prescriptions and to whom. And it's in a database. And we don't want that to be shared recklessly. But what that data looks like, how it's compiled and who gets to see it and for what purpose Okay, this this sounds like technocratic stuff, but this is centerpiece for trying to fight the problem. And the county executive shoe, I think, hit the nail on the head saying we just buffed up this program last year. And the thing we really did a good job getting after was a person who's desperate for drugs, who ends up taking a prescription or like a photocopied prescription to multiple doctors to try and get three or four or six or 10 different prescriptions filled, you know, by different docs. The boy, I really need, I have this this problem and doctor and, shopping. Yeah, that sort of thing. So, and then you come away with now, oh, now I have, you know, now I have six different pieces of paper and I go to different pharmacies and now I got, I got a whole bunch of these drugs. So we've addressed that side of the equation. So, so we, we, calm that down by having better monitoring on who's writing and who's given prescriptions. But the problem may still lie with, do we have good data and can our cops and our local health departments know if we have folks who are over prescribing? Is there one office in your county that's responsible for 80% of the prescriptions? Are they just script mills? Right. And to have that information obviously would be very valuable to local law enforcement or a local health department, because that is the exact kind of thing that is just adding to this epidemic every single day. Not saying it's only doctors that are causing this epidemic, by the way, but if you do have a couple bad docs in a certain area that are prescribing 90% of the opioids that are being dispensed in your county, that's a problem. Right. So, so this is not an easy lift. It is one of those tricky issues in public policy of balancing the professional rights and privacy of doctors and patients against this calamitous social plague that right now we just have not been able to beat. So from the doctor's point of view, I think they would be concerned, number one, that they're always going to have to be looking over their shoulder. They're going to be concerned that doctors will stop writing these prescriptions, even for patients who may need because they're scared that they'll get caught up in some sort of investigation and this data is flying around all over the place. But while those may be valid, I think there's, there's a balance that can be struck. And I think this data, for the situation that we're in right now, we need innovative ideas. We need every tool in the toolbox. And to have access to this information is a great way, I think, to identify problems and, and, and cut them out. And, you know, and so that the doctors who are doing a good job and who are you know, acting in good faith and and really treating pain because we know they need to, we're not meaning for them to get caught up. But the ones who aren't, who are giving them a bad name, they need to be cut out. Right. And the the county governments have a role and I think a duty on an issue like this. This is the sort of thing that is transcended the typical 
you know, we're concerned about, we're concerned about the flu. We're, you know, we're concerned about um, managing our jails. Mm -hmm. And and as a routine matter of providing public services, those things are, you know, what your response, that's, that's your beat. If you have been elected as a county commissioner, a county council, or an exec, I mean, that's your job to tend to these functions of county government. But right now, your county jail is awash with people who are there pre-trial or short-term sentencing, right. who are there for nonviolent drug offenses. And your local health clinics and your hospitals and your EMS companies and your police departments are working overtime to try and help people who are in crisis or try and you know get people back on track. Um, your emergency rooms are being overwhelmed. I mean, this is this is really crippling our whole public safety and, and public health infrastructure. And of course, on top of all that, your residents are dying. Your, your residents who have family members who are affected by this are in crisis. So all of that added up together Extreme times call for extreme measures in some respect. And, and so, so I, think, I think Annapolis will be hearing from county officials on an issue like this, which is, you know, it's a little far afield for MAKO. This is, you know, this is not the usual territory that we walk in. But, you know, MAKO took up the opioid crisis as sort of an umbrella policy priority for, for two straight years. And, and we still, every time we bring in a topic at one of our conferences or a speaker to the to the to um, the Mako's legislative committee. It's rapt attention. There's stories from every every corner of the state. This is a top county priority, as it ought to be. Absolutely. So this will be a very interesting issue for the 2018 session. Stay tuned. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. Tune in every week. We will provide you with a recap of the week in Annapolis and discuss some interesting issues that we're talking about, that we're hearing about. Everything county governments. Until next week. Michael and Kevin signing off. Talk to you soon.